Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margo, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. My Summer of Serial Killer series is coming to an end, but don't you worry, I will cover more serial killers in the future, I promise. But before I begin today's story, I do have one announcement. I'm actually going to be taking some time off, as I did last summer, but instead of just leaving you high and dry without anything to listen to for nine weeks, I'm actually going to be introducing you to some of my favorite podcasts. Yes, I'm sure that you noticed that other podcasts, they cover military murder type cases as well. And I reached out to some of my podcast friends to see if they'd be willing to share one of their military murder stories on my feed so that my listeners could listen. And guess what? They agreed. So continue to tune in every single week to listen to a new podcast that will cover a different military murder story every week. And if you like what you hear on that podcast, then you can head over to their feed and binge all of their episodes. So it's completely win-win. So stay tuned because I will be kicking that off the first Monday of August. Okay, so you may all be wondering what I plan on doing during my time off. Well, I am actually going to be taking some much deserved maternity leave. Hopefully I can sleep now that the baby is sleeping in long stretches at night. And I also plan on kicking up my exercise routine up by a notch or two. But don't you worry, I'm not completely going away. I will still be cranking out episodes for the fan club and just trying to figure out how to continue to grow the podcast. I haven't asked y'all in a while. So during this time, I would love it if you just took a minute to tell a friend about military murder and tell all your friends who might be road tripping or PCSing this summer. Everyone needs something to listen to while in the car or the airplane. And why not listen to military murder? So be sure to share it with your friends. Okay, enough with the announcements. On with the show. This week, I am discussing a serial killer who was a Navy sailor, a husband, a father, and just another man who lived in the burbs. And many describe him as unremarkable and quiet, but he had a dark side. Join me today as I discuss serial killer John Eric Armstrong. Now, let's dig in. This story was researched and written in part by Sloan, who writes for my girls over at Killer Queens. Sloan, thank you so much for your help. My resources for this episode include an investigation discovery TV show titled Very Bad Men, specifically season two, episode three, and articles on thoughtco.com, medium.com, and CNN, and research summarized by the Radford University Department of Psychology. Our story today takes place in Michigan. On January 2nd, 2000, a man discovered a dead body in a river under a bridge in Dearborn Heights, Michigan. 
Upon making the discovery, he quickly called 911. When the police arrived, they were shaken when they found the body of 39-year-old Wendy Jordan. She had been reported missing a day earlier when she missed her daily call with one of her younger sisters. When she was discovered, she was half-emerged in the Rouge River and her underwear and stockings were around her legs, a clear sign that she had been raped. It was determined that she had died by strangulation. Police questioned the caller. How did he discover the woman in such an odd location? The caller mentioned that as he was passing the location, he suddenly became nauseous. He walked over to the edge of the bridge and began to yak. And that's when he spotted the woman under the bridge. It was kind of an incredulous story, but they really didn't have any reason to suspect the man. So they took down the man's information and continued canvassing the area. From Wendy's body, they were able to obtain some pretty important evidence that could help catch her killer. They obtained a semen sample and fibers from her clothing. But when they attempted to get a DNA match from their database, they didn't get a hit. The police gathered information about the victim. It appeared that she had become addicted to drugs and she had turned to sex work to support her habit. Detectives believe that Wendy could have been killed by an acquaintance but months went by without any leads, and soon her killer would strike again. Willamania Drain was waiting for a bus one day when out of nowhere, a black Jeep Wrangler pulled up and offered her a ride. The young lady didn't see any issues with it, and she accepted. Little did she know the man offering her a ride was a murderer, and he had a thirst for more. After Willamania got into the car, the man took her down a dark street and he basically said, I have to stop. I have to get something. Then he reached into his pocket and began to attack Willamania. The man grabbed her by the throat and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, attempting to kill her. Fortunately, the details about this night could actually be obtained from the victim herself because she survived. This woman was a badass. She would later tell the police that, quote, he had reached out and grabbed her neck. I was lucky I was wearing a scarf. He got my scarf and had a hold of me real tight, end quote. This man, who had seemed completely harmless, now had his arms tightly gripping her throat and he was cutting off her airway. She was slipping into unconsciousness, but she wasn't giving up. She fought hard. Willamania hit the man in the face and knocked his glasses off. And then frantically, she reached into her coat she kept thinking, if I could just put my hand in my coat pocket. Finally, she was able to get her hand in the pocket and she grabbed her can of pepper spray. What? She sprayed her attacker in the face and made her escape. She reported the assault and gave a description of the man. But as always, the man slipped through the cracks unseen and undetected. And the killer continued to canvas in the same area as before every day becoming more and more crass. I mean, he had attacked women who had escaped and they had seen his face and his vehicle, but he nonetheless returned to Michigan Avenue to solicit more sex workers. It seemed at this point, sex workers on Michigan Avenue were getting picked up and attacked and the attacker would continue to attack until he was stopped. On April 10th, 2000, a person riding the Conrail freight trains passed a railroad yard in Detroit. While passing, the person saw something. 
it appeared to be a dead body posed in a very lewd manner. Police were immediately called in and of course they needed to secure the scene. So as they were securing the area and conducting a canvas of the rail yard, they stumbled upon another body. This one in a different stage of decomposition than the first. Again, they began to secure the crime scene and it didn't take long until they found a third female body. All three women found were sex workers. It was clear from their different stages of decomposition that the women had been murdered and dumped at different times. It was now evident that there was a serial killer on the loose in Detroit, Michigan. And just on a side note, a fourth body was found nearby, but somehow it would turn out to be unrelated. What are the odds? Well, it turns out it was nothing too out of the ordinary for this time. At this time, Detroit was known as the, quote, murder capital of the U.S., end quote. An unrelated body next to three other bodies was just another day in Detroit, apparently. The three bodies found together were determined to be the bodies of 34-year-old Kelly Hood, 32-year-old Rose Marie Felt, and 20-year-old Robin Brown. It was determined that Kelly Hood's body had been left there about three weeks prior to the body's discovery, likely sometime in mid-March. Rosemary Felt was dumped there about a month prior, and Robin Brown, well, she had actually been dumped roughly 12 hours before she was discovered. Detroit Police Chief Benny Napoleon told the media that the department was taking these deaths very seriously, and they were doing their best to find the killer quickly. Of course, they never want to create a panic, so a sense of urgency is of the essence. What police didn't realize was that their serial killer was already in their sights. They just needed to connect the dots. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, 
for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. As soon as three female deceased bodies were discovered, authorities from different jurisdictions came together to form a task force. The task force consisted of Detroit Police Sex Crimes Unit, the Violent Crimes Task Force, the Michigan State Police, the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, and even the FBI. Chief Benny Napoleon had already dealt with one serial killer in his time, so he knew time was of the essence. Chief Napoleon remembers that for a nine-month period from 91 to 92, he was on the hunt for a different serial killer named Benjamin Tony Atkins. The 29-year-old was convicted for raping and strangling 11 women, most of whom had also been sex workers at some point and had histories of drug use. Atkins had left most of his victims in abandoned buildings and later said that he had murdered them because he had an intense hatred of, quote, prostitutes, end quote. Atkins was later convicted and sentenced to 11 life sentences. However, he died in September of 97, only four years into his sentence. Chief Napoleon had caught one serial killer during his tenure, and he was determined to catch this one. Chief Napoleon's time investigating Atkins meant that he knew the importance of catching this killer quickly because a killer won't stop killing until he is stopped. Since the three victims were sex workers, investigators spoke to other sex workers to see if they had any Johns who were, I don't know, maybe particularly rough or who had tried to strangle them in the past. And bingo, the more sex workers they interviewed, the more they got a glimpse or even an image of their potential serial killer. Police began to patrol the more frequented areas by sex workers 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their main areas of patrol were on Michigan Avenue. Well, on April 12, 2000, only two days after the discovery of Kelly, Rose, and Robin, police arrested a man driving a Jeep Wrangler who was out soliciting sex workers on Michigan Avenue. The man's name was John Eric Armstrong. And you will not believe who John Eric Armstrong was. Well, he was the man who found Wendy Jordan under the bridge. And guess what? He was the man that called police. Super sketch, huh? Turns out he was on police radar from the jump. Police were not convinced by his, quote, accidental discovery, end quote, of a dead body story. And when they canvassed the area by the Rouge River where they found Wendy, people told a different story. In fact, they mentioned seeing John Eric Armstrong in that area before he claimed he was there and made the discovery. John had even been questioned prior to this, and he voluntarily provided a DNA sample. And that DNA sample was still being tested when John was arrested in April. Well, when they arrested John and brought him down for questioning, John cracked and spilled the beans. John was allegedly remorseful and, quite honestly, a blubbering mess. Later, Assistant Police Chief Marvin Winkler said, quote, that John expressed remorse several times and was crying like a baby. Basically, he told us he either killed or tried to kill every prostitute he'd ever had sex with, end quote. The crazy part is that they believed that he was responsible for only those four murders, but they could have never imagined 
how many murders John Eric Armstrong would actually confess to. John confessed to murdering sex workers in Washington State, Hong Kong, Thailand, Hawaii, the Middle East, and pretty much anywhere else that the USS Nimitz anchored during his eight years on active duty in the Navy. And John wasn't just willy-nilly confessing to things. He provided police with details, dates, and locations that only the real killer would be familiar with. But while he was an open book about the murders, there was one thing he couldn't provide, the women's names, because he never cared enough to learn them. Investigators were now trying to connect murders and assaults from any place the USS Nimitz had docked from 92 to 99. Of course, this was a difficult feat, and they had to call in the Navy who helped determine where the Nimitz had been during those times. And the investigators called in the local police in those areas, as well as the FBI offices in the overseas locations. It is estimated that overall, agents and 38 FBI offices in foreign countries were looking into their unsolved cases. John Eric Armstrong was born in New Bern, North Carolina on November 23, 1973. John was the firstborn to his mother and father, and when he was five, his baby brother, Michael, a.k.a. Mikey, was born. John was already dealing with a lot in his life, as his dad was abusive and often neglectful. Back when he was just two years old, toddler John was supposed to be under the supervision of his father, but Mr. Armstrong's neglectful nature left the toddler to entertain himself. Now, as most of you know, unsupervised two-year-olds quickly tend to get into things they shouldn't. We all know, even those of us without kids know, when there's a toddler around and then things all of a sudden get silent, those kids are up to no good, usually either getting into your makeup, drawing on walls, or in my case, they are snooping around my podcast office, touching buttons they shouldn't be touching. <laughs> well, little John Armstrong was like any other toddler, but this time when he was left to his own devices, he managed to fall out of a window and break his little leg. Anyway, it was also reported that John was sexually assaulted by his father at some point. Three years after John broke his leg, his brother was born. But not long after that, in January of 1979, baby Michael actually died of SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Now, Mikey's death took a toll on five-year-old John. He was devastated. And later that same year, he attempted to take his own life by riding his bicycle into heavy traffic. John explained his actions, saying that he wanted to be with his baby brother. How sad is this? This really makes me so sad to think because people don't realize that things like this affect children. But while kids are resilient, they still need an avenue to discuss their feelings. And I'm sure that little John didn't have the avenue to talk to anybody. After Mikey died, Mr. Armstrong up and left his family for another woman, relocating to Georgia. It was reported that Mr. Armstrong actually left the home before the family could raise the money for a headstone for baby Mikey. Later, John would say that he didn't want to be known by John any longer because that was his father's name. 
Instead, he preferred to be called Eric. Family and friends appeased him and they called him Eric. And later, when he was arrested, he was wearing a shirt with the name Eric on it. For purposes of this podcast, I will continue to call him John Armstrong. Throughout the rest of his childhood, John would be bullied and teased for being a chubby redhead with freckles. It was during this time that he developed an unhealthy relationship with women and sex. It was noted in a Radford University study of serial killers that John's first sexual experience was somewhere between the ages of 11 and 15. And when he was 15, he was placed in a psychiatric hospital because he had locked himself in a bathroom saying that a girl in his high school was, quote, pressuring him to have sex, end quote. Now, I don't really understand the extreme of putting him in a hospital because he locked himself in a bathroom. But anyway, this is an overall bizarre story. So just hang in there. In 1989, when John was 16 years old, he finally saw a psychologist in order to address his unresolved issues about his baby brother's death 11 years earlier. During his high school years, John was considered a satisfactory student who was, I don't know, average. He got B's and C's and he even had a girlfriend for a while. He was into extracurricular activities such as baseball, fishing and debate. He even earned a debate trophy once. He was a regular student and he didn't have any discipline issues in school. In 1992, John graduated from high school with 350 other bright-eyed, bushy-tailed teenagers, and it was after graduation that he enlisted in the Navy. John was dating a girl during this time, but his girlfriend suddenly left him for another guy. It is said that this other guy would shower John's girl with gifts until he finally convinced her to date him. This really irritated John, and he would later indicate he believed his girlfriend was engaged in a form of, quote, prostitution, since the other guy, in essence, was buying her. And this is where his hatred for sex workers stemmed. In 1993, John boarded the USS Nimitz for his naval tour. The USS Nimitz can carry 60 aircraft and up to 5,000 sailors and Marines. This ship is the size of a small town. This ship, or small floating town, was also the place where John Armstrong met Katie Rednoski from Michigan. And years later, on September 25th, 1998, John and Katie got married. On February 4th of 1999, John's son was born. And months later in April, after serving for eight years, John separated from the Navy with an honorable discharge. It is unclear why he left the military, but he would later claim that he left the Navy because it didn't offer him enough education. Once John was out of the Navy, John and his family settled themselves in Dearborn Heights in Michigan. They bought a two-story bungalow-style home in the suburbs and neighbors recalled that the family was quiet and there was nothing remarkable about their coming to the neighborhood. Before settling in Michigan, John had applied to the Virginia State Police and had been rejected. Since that wasn't an option any longer, he decided he would start taking classes at Schoolcraft College. By this point, John's wife was expecting their second child and John's in-laws had moved in with them. So John had his hands full. He had a large family to support. And during this time, John was employed at the Detroit Metropolitan Airport. 
as a refueler. He had also previously worked as a security guard at DMC Healthcare Centers in a Detroit suburb. However, John had been fired from that job after he filed a false police report. Wait, what? What in the world? A false police report? What could that be about? Well, let me tell you all about it. Turns out that back in November of 1999, John was having a slow night as a security guard. So instead of just being normal and sitting there, our homeboy John dialed 911 to report that he had been attacked while he was trying to intervene in a robbery. When officers arrived on scene, they found John with superficial injuries to his face and arms. The wounds were bleeding, but but like I said, they were all superficial wounds for what appeared to be a frenzied attack by escaping robbers. After minimal pressure by the police to explain exactly what happened, John came clean. He said that he had actually cut himself with a scalpel and then made up the entire story. There was never a robbery. There was never a scuffle. There was just John Eric Armstrong looking for some attention. This stunt, of course, got him fired from his security guard job. And it was then that women started turning up dead in the local area. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. After John Eric Armstrong was busted on Michigan Avenue for soliciting sex workers, he was hauled down to the station for questioning. He ended up providing a lengthy confession. I am sure the detectives working that case thought they'd make it home early for dinner. But when John Armstrong got to talking, the detectives got more than they bargained for. Let's get into his confession. Seattle, Washington. John confessed to killing two female sex workers and a man there. He claimed to have killed the man because they got into an argument. Spokane, Washington. John confessed to killing one female sex worker there. Norfolk, Virginia. He confessed to killing one female sex worker there. And when police followed up with Norfolk authorities, they did have a cold case that seemed consistent with the details provided by John. You see, back on March 5th of 1998, Norfolk police discovered the body of 34-year-old Lynette Hillig behind a bingo parlor. Her body was discovered only 12 miles from where the USS Nimitz 
had been docked in its home station in Newport News. While the USS Nimitz was long gone when her body was discovered, it had been docked there just four days prior to her discovery. Lynette had numerous arrests for her chosen profession as a sex worker, so police knew exactly who she was when she was discovered. Police quickly reopened her cold case due to John's confession. Detective James Hines of the Wayne County Sheriff's Office said, quote, Once he began to talk, he was freely giving very intimate details about the case. His demeanor was shifting quite often from being calm to irritable to sometimes sad, end quote. Detectives Hines continued to say, quote, his mood would fluctuate from calm to an appearance of anger, but the anger didn't appear to be sincere, end quote. It is evident from his confession that John used the USS Nimitz as his camouflage. He used the Nimitz as his Uber, taking him to all the locations of his next victims. And then after he committed his heinous crimes, he used the USS Nimitz as his getaway vehicle, always flying under the radar. Due to the fact that John was on active duty at the time of his alleged crimes, NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, joined the task force, as did authorities around the world. And when word got out about a potential serial killer with access to various naval ports, different authorities were calling the Detroit police, trying to close out some of their cold case files. However, despite all these people working on the case, local detectives started to question the validity of John's confessions. One police commander in Detroit said, quote, there are gaps in his timeline we are concerned about. Nothing outside of Michigan has been confirmed yet, end quote. For example, the Nimitz was in Hawaii for one day in 93 and four days in 96. The Honolulu police were unable to match any of their open cold case files to murders occurring during these timeframes. There was one murder in 94, but investigators were not able to connect John to Hawaii in 94. Investigators were still concerned about the, quote, gaps in timeline, end quote. They were beginning to think that John was confessing to crimes he didn't commit to, I don't know, make himself more notorious or memorable. And John did appear to want to get the most bang for his buck in his confessions. He admitted to police that he had either killed or attempted to kill every single sex worker he had ever picked up and had sex with. Jack Levin, who is the director of the Brudnick Center on Violence at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, said of Armstrong's multiple confessions, quote, a lot of these guys are very eager to become the Heisman Trophy winner of serial killing, end quote. This philosophy was shared by Eric W. Hickey, a professor of criminology at California State University in Fresco. Professor Hickey theorized that John Armstrong may have thought that if I'm caught and getting put in jail, I may as well go out with a bang. He also said, quote, they have him for five. He might as well go for 15 or 20 and get a big name. They, serial killers, may have low self-esteem and they want some recognition, end quote. And then there's another theory. It's possible that John had assumed that women he strangled had died, but they very well could have only passed out. And it's plausible to believe that these women never reported the attack or that they did report it. And because it wasn't murder, it got brushed aside. Part of John's confession got even crazier. John actually confessed that after he murdered the women and disposed of them by the railway, 
he often returned to the railway to have sex with their corpse. But another theory of why John's confessions couldn't be cooperated is that the investigations that were conducted weren't conducted very well. Not every agency is diligent in investigating the deaths and attacks of sex workers. There were issues with the record keeping and the investigations performed in numerous cases, making it difficult to cooperate John's confessions. John's attorney, however, Robert Mitchell, didn't believe that John was responsible for as many murders as he claimed. Another person who was not buying John's confession was his wife. John's wife, Katie, was just unwilling to accept that her husband was a murderer. She also went on to accuse the police of harassing them when they first suspected he had something to do with Wendy's murder. While the full extent of John's murders and assaults were never confirmed, the murders of Kelly Hood, Rosemary Felt, Robin Brown, Wendy Jordan, and Lynette Hillig were. Also confirmed were his attacks on other sex workers such as Cynthia Smith and Devin Marcus. And let's not forget, he confessed and then those confessions were corroborated. Devin Marcus was a male but dressed as a female when he worked the streets of Michigan. He reported to the police that on April 7th, John, who he could identify, had paid him $40 for sex, but then attacked him and strangled him. Fortunately, Devin was able to escape. During John's confession, John admitted that he was suicidal. So at that point, he was placed in a maximum security psychiatric hospital. But on April 14th, 2000, John was arraigned for Wendy Jordan's murder. A few weeks later, on the 28th of April, John was arraigned for the murders of four other women and the attempted murders of three people. In August, he was ordered to stand trial for the murder of Kelly Hood and the assault of Cynthia Smith. On February 27, 2001, John Eric Armstrong faced his first trial for the murder of Wendy Jordan. Trial lasted two weeks and he was convicted of first-degree murder. Months later, he was sentenced to life without parole. Throughout the entire trial, John's wife, Katie, stood by her man. After the first trial, Katie Armstrong told reporters that there was no way that John could have killed Wendy Jordan. She stated that on the date of her murder, John only left the house briefly to pick up some medicine. She did not believe it was possible that he had enough time to kill a lady and dispose of her body. But just to be clear, it wasn't just his confession they had. They also had fibers from the Jeep that matched fibers found on Wendy's body and DNA tied John directly to Wendy's murder. Wendy Jordan's sister, Bonnie, was in attendance at the trial and sentencing. She wanted to make sure that people knew that while her sister had been a sex worker at some point, she wasn't living that life anymore. Bonnie expressed that Wendy had been clean and sober for two years. She was working as a manager of a gas station when she was murdered. The media was eager to get dirt on John from his time on active duty. So they contacted various sailors, but most of them refused to provide statements. Mm, shocker. Some of them flat out denied knowing John Armstrong, but a few brave sailors did make statements, but it was nothing crazy. 
The ones who did speak just said, yeah, yeah, everyone's talking about it. He was unremarkable and quiet. John's petty officer from 94 to 97, John Estevez, did have this to say about the ordeal, quote, I just can't believe this guy would do something like that. He was my sailor of the month at one time. This guy had an unblemished record aboard the ship when he was working for me, end quote. One of John's shipmates even said about John that he was the kind of guy that, quote, moms want their kids to meet, end quote. John never had a second trial because last minute he decided to plead guilty to the murders of Robin Brown, Rosemary Felt, and Monica Johnson. He murdered Monica Johnson in December of 99, just a few days before he murdered Wendy. In the end, John Armstrong was convicted for the murders of Wendy Jordan, Robin Brown, Rosemary Felt, Monica Johnson, and Kelly Hood, as well as the attempted murder of Devin Marcus and one additional person. The charges for attempted murder in the case of Willamania Drain were dropped. While this serial killer is behind bars for the rest of his life, the question remains, are there more John Eric Armstrong victims out there? He claimed responsibility for 30 plus murders worldwide. Did his Navy service perfectly camouflage his crimes? And if so, did someone know or were there signs? There are reports that police believe they can link John to other murders, including three in Seattle, two in Hawaii, two in Hong Kong, one in North Carolina, one in Thailand, one in Singapore, and one in Virginia. But of course, these are unconfirmed. John Eric Armstrong was only 26 years old at the time of his arrest, and police believe that his first attack was at least six years earlier. John focused his rage on sex workers. The ones that escaped and lived to tell the tale told police that while John was strangling them, he talked about how much he hated sex workers. James Fox, a criminal justice professor at Northeastern University in Boston said, quote, they, talking about sex workers, are the most common target. They are women who get into cars and find themselves at the mercy of strange men. For the killer, it is psychologically easier to kill them because he already views them as worthless sex machines who exist only to give pleasure, end quote. Serial killers like John Eric Armstrong live normal, quiet, even mundane lives, but then live out their darkest, murderous fantasies in secret. BTK did it. Russell Williams did it. Thomas Bundy did it. John Eric Armstrong did it. And the list goes on and on. This concludes my Summer of Serial Killer mini-series. I am sure it was as eye-opening for you as it was for me to learn that so many serial killers either served while on active duty or immediately after. Makes you want to reconsider trusting folks, huh? <laughs> well, I am excited for next week when I will begin to introduce you to some other podcasts that have covered some pretty interesting military murders. I hope you will continue to tune in because these stories are just as shocking as the ones I tell you on Military Murder. Until October, you can find me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. And don't forget to join the Facebook group at facebook.com 
slash groups slash military true crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. This week's newest assistant producer is Zyra H. Our executive producers are Ryan R., Alicia H., Falcon 13, Nicole G., and Tina S., owner of Stitch 6 to 6 Embroidery. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story in the fall. Podcast.